Otherwise, just type in Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 16. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here and grateful to get to continue to open up to this great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Rome in the first century. And this morning, I'm just mindful how good it is that in the middle of all of the content and all of the information and all of the conversations, we get to go to God's Word. What a gift that is that I don't have to decipher, you don't have to decipher through all of that and seek out all the wisdom that might be some good life hacks this year. We can go to the unadulterated, beautiful Word of God. Um, and yet it always does something, always the same thing, it always like shocks and surprises me where I'm looking for a little nugget that I can just apply to my life and the Lord always just says, like, would you look at me first, please? Would you just let me remind you of my character, of my love for you before you look to apply something else? And I don't know, he did it again this week to me, so, <laughs> or maybe I did it again to him, depending on which, you know, vantage point you uh, consider it. But uh, to kind of refresh our recollection, Paul is constructing a vision of Christian behavior here in Romans chapter 12. Um, and it's rooted in the fact that we've been justified by love. So he does not begin with chapter 12, which is quite beautiful. It would be a wonderful thing to do. Here are good ways to live your life. He begins through chapters 1 through 11, communicating who God is, what He's like, what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then by 12, there's this huge shift now to say, because of all of that, because of those 11 chapters and all the doctrine and truth that is therein, or what we would call orthodoxy, right, thinking, because of all of that, here's how you live, or orthopraxy, here's what it looks like to live in light of that truth. And as he does, as he paints this picture, I think this clarity of community begins to emerge, this, this idea of the collective, which is really fitting, right? Because as much as right thinking is fruitless without right living, in other words, you can have all of the right, you know, theology or the right, right thinking about God, but if you don't live in a manner that's worthy of the calling, in many respects you prove you don't know it, in many respects we prove that we don't uh, totally grasp it, and, and I think then the Christian life as right thinking is meant to manifest in right living so, so the same way the Christian life is meant to be connected to God's people. It's meant to be a family. It's meant to, that you and I are not simply individuals in and of ourselves followers of Jesus. We're not meant to be isolated, but over and over again, the, the, the Scriptures continue to communicate this idea that you and I are a part of a family. We're part of a community. And that it's not just that we are members of something, but our very identity is wrapped up in one another. And I think this is what this text really bears witness to today, so that when we come to Christ, we also come together. And that when we are saved by Jesus, we're actually saved with each other, right? This is, this is the beauty and also challenge of the Christian life, is you are not just saved to be by yourself, you are saved to be with me and to be with each other and to learn to navigate this together. And so that means that the highs get higher and the lows may even get a little bit lower, a little bit more challenging than maybe if it was just me taking care of my own things. And again, I think this, this text bears witness that when we are reborn, we are adopted into a family. I hope you're tracking with me in this. This, is, I think, is what Paul has been communicating between the lines of his communication on Christian behavior. This, of course, is really good news. But as we said, it's really hard work. It's really good news that we are saved together as a people, but it's also really hard work. So today is Paul, what Paul is going to instruct us in verse 16 in particular, is he's going to say, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Not just live together, just be next to each other. 
Um, but, and not just live in harmony, because I think it might feel really harmonious to just like separate from one another <laughs> most of the time, but live in harmony together. Good news, yet yeah, it takes, takes some work. And I think this command then is really central to this entire passage, to the passage that we've read here in verses 14 uh, through, through 16. And we live in harmony with one another. As always, many things They'll keep us from living the way that God desires for us to live. And so along the way, we'll have to see and really admit why is it just says, here's what you need to do. Go and try and do it. But the gospel according to grace is that there's something within me that, that either I am believing or I am loving or, or I am doing, which is, which is disconnected or is disjointed from the way and the will of Jesus. And so we have to address why is it so hard to live in harmony with one another as we sort of navigate this, this text. And uh, it's not even just in our own space, but uh, it's the bigger picture of what it means to be God's people in this world. See, ultimately, what we'll learn is how to live in peace and unity by responding to a myriad of different circumstances and feelings and differences around us. Because when we look at this world, it's not very harmonious, is it? It's not very harmonious. I mean, even if you don't have social media, you just walk around in real space, in real time, with real human beings in 3D life, right? And it is not very harmonious. Therefore, many things already and will continue to threaten the harmony of God's people. And throughout history, the church has taken different stances on what that means. For some, they've tried to completely transform everything around them to make it more harmonious. For others, they've withdrawn from society to try to live in a more harmonious way away from the world. And so I think that we have to navigate all of that together, and that's what I'd like to talk about. I want to talk about what it looks like to live in harmony in a chaotic world. What does it look like to live in harmony in a chaotic world of which we are a part of the chaos in many respects and many times? And here's how we'll organize our time together. We'll look first at living in harmony when we're mistreated, and then living in harmony when we lack empathy, and then living in harmony when we're prideful. So living in harmony when we're mistreated, when we lack empathy, and when we are prideful. And so let's pray and ask for God's help as we continue to press on. Heavenly Father, There is much for us to consider today, um, and we don't consider it in a sort of sterilized environment, free of outside thoughts and feelings. And so thank you that you receive us in the complexity of who we are and in our week. Uh, For some of us, it's just going to be good to just sit in this space and feel safe and listen. For others of us, there are things that we're already thinking and bringing and really desire to figure out and uh, understand more clearly. And so we thank you that as we come to your word, you're mindful of all of us. And all of the knowledge that charity is, and thank you for that. Thank you that you take really good care of us through your word. And so I pray whether that looks like confession today or it looks like just receiving your comfort and love, we thank you that you do that. And you always do it through your word. Um, and so we ask, Father, that you would help us to be clear and responsible and responsive to your word today. Um, for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, Paul begins with persecution. And um, one, in other words, one way that I think chaos disrupts harmony in this world, and particularly within Christian community, is through persecution or mistreatment. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, we ought to be really careful, but I, I think not apologetic when we talk about persecution. 
we should consider what, uh, and concede rather, that the Bible speaks about persecution. It's speaking about something very specific and really something very sacred that Jesus identified not only with himself but with his first followers. Persecution, then we should be clear, is harassment, abuse, violence that is caused by religious, racial, or cultural oppression. It's very specific. I hope you're tracking with that. It's suffering inflicted as a direct response to difference and hatred. Therefore, we ought to be very careful about equating all suffering with persecution. It's really vital to, I think, honoring the story of our faith and honoring even what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing throughout the world. But we don't have to be apologetic. In, in, in other words, while we should have deference for those who are persecuted, we should still acknowledge that all types of suffering are hard. I think this is really hard in Christian community, right? Because immediately when someone brings me a problem, what do I do? I compare it with my problems. And if it's worse, I will give you like love and empathy and my attention. And if it's not, I'll be like, all right, hurry up. I got some other things I need to do, right? So we even do this evaluation if we're not careful based on our own sufferings or our own challenges as to whether or not to give them credence. And so I think what the scriptures do quite beautifully is it gives us clarity of the sacredness of suffering as a result of every different uh, but it never devalues suffering or overlooks the suffering of every different um, experience. See, though the suffering that you may go through physically, spiritually, and otherwise may not be categorized specifically as persecution, I think that, that God and His Word bears incredible uh, love for you in the midst of your trouble, whatever it is, right? So that means that just because your, your uh, challenge has to do with what job you should take next, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter to God, right? I have never turned one of my children away because I deemed their problem too insignificant for my attention. What? Not because the, the, the problem was so great, because that was my kid, right? So, so the father is actually looking at you, not your problem of determining whether or not he's going to give you attention and listen to you and care for you in the midst of your suffering. And I think that's what we learn when we open up the scriptures and consider suffering. And so what's more then, I, I think, I, I hope, that means that we can uh, understand what Paul is teaching and glean principles about all types of suffering from what the Bible teaches about responding to persecution. See, with that said, the principle here is clear and it's really challenging. We're supposed to bless those who persecute us. Paul is saying that in context, this kind of response fosters harmony. Paul's instruction is multifaceted. It's a positive instruction, but it's also a prohibition. He says, bless and do not curse. Perhaps when you are mistreated, it's hard enough to not just curse someone, right? And this isn't just that I, I say a bad word. It's that I say something bad about them, <laughs> right? This is what the scriptures are getting at. This is what Paul is getting at. It's not that I just have the slip of a tongue and say something that's miscalculated or very not lack self-control, but I'm saying something specifically meant to hurt them, you know? So in other words, I think that means you don't need to cuss at somebody to curse them in response to how they mistreat you. I think of what Paul is getting at. See, the gospel, though, compels us to something more, not just that we would refrain from speaking ill in return, but it compels us from saying something loving. It's do not curse. No doubt we're facing a myriad of acute persecutions to pray for people who hurt them. Paul is going even beyond forgiveness. Scholar Leon Morrison notes that Paul is saying that they should actively seek the good as they pray for God's blessing on them. 
actively seek the good of someone who has persecuted you. See, to bless a persecutor is to seek their good. It's to pray for them. To bless someone who mistreats is one way, then, of seeking to live in harmony as God's people. It cultivates harmony. Now, why is this so challenging? Well, I think it's because we just want to cancel them instead. When someone mistreats me or mistreats people that I love, in fact, many in our social moment find it repulsive to ask someone who has been hurt to bless and forgive. And I'm less concerned about like a larger cultural tendency to withhold forgiveness or end careers or publicly humiliate someone for bad behavior. I think that's easy to deal with. That's an easy target to critique of our culture. What's a lot harder is to look at my heart and to ask, why is it that I automatically distance myself from someone who has wronged me? as a way of trying to get back to them. Not, not out of self-protection or a season of needing space, but of trying to return evil with evil. To be sure mistreatment is unjust and blessing and praying and forgiving, that might take time. See, I, I'm, I'm grateful that Paul didn't say, and bless and do not curse them right away and never, right? It might take time to work through how that pain actually hurt you. For some of us, we are just now discovering the pain that we endured in our childhood or pain that we endured years ago that we didn't even realize back then that that was actually someone hurting us, and that wasn't even suffering. And so this may take time to walk through that. It might need the help, and it often does need the help of a Christian community. Well, Paul is certainly, I think, critical elsewhere of those who harm. Feel that a little bit? This is very out of step with our cultural moment. The one who has been sinned against is instructed to return persecution with blessing. Author Delia Owens expresses this tension in her uh, uh, novel, Where the Crawdad Sings. Uh, And she, she says, why should the injured, the still bleeding, bear the onus of forgiveness? I think she articulates a question that many of us ask, and and certainly I think we ask as a society right now, why should the person who was hurt have any responsibility? They didn't do anything wrong. I have said this in frustration to my wife when I've been in the middle of conflict. I didn't even do anything. Why should I be the one that has to go and talk about it, right? It goes against the grain of our social sensibilities and of our personal proclivities, and yet there it is in the Scriptures. It's challenging to wrestle with this. I think Paul is getting at something even deeper that maybe we don't like nearly as much as we act like we like when we really peel back the layers. He's getting at this idea of loving our neighbors, loving our neighbors as ourselves. In his famous address, popularly known uh, by many Christians as the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invited his followers to this sort of countercultural way of love. He says in Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of his sermon, middle of his address. He said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think these words are pretty weighty. And they're they're easy to read very quickly. Love your neighbors and love your enemies, okay. But when you really start pressing in to what that looks like in real space and time, to love someone who has hurt you, 
It's, e- it's, it's, it's harder to really grasp. with Hating your enemies is not only easy, but it's instinctive. It's instinctive to lash out against someone who's lashed out against you. It's instinctive to hurt and to even hate someone who is hurting and hating on you. Loving them is hard. That's not natural for us. It's supernatural. It's an act of grace to bless and pray for someone who you know is not blessing or ever prayed for you, right? I think it reveals how often we take our cues of spiritual formation from other people and not from the Lord. In in other words, I'm going to mirror what other people are doing to me, not mirror who my Heavenly Father is and how He has loved me. And I think this is something for us to just consider and address. What is that habit within us that is more uh, prone to mirror the behavior of others and not of our Lord? It creates this kind of culture, I think, that even disdains the idea of forgiveness. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but forgiveness is not having its moment. For forgiveness is something that's a lot harder for people to grasp and understand, right? What, what's more in, in our culture is to validate separation and to validate refusing reconciliation. And in some respects, those are really merited, merited moments, especially when it relates to a lot of power dynamics in our culture. At the same time, I think by not searching that deeper, by interrogating that a little bit more, we miss what um, Desmond Tutu wrote recently in his book. Well, really, it's just no future without forgiveness. In the apartheid in South Africa, he's writing about a time when people are being incredibly persecuted in ways that perhaps we've never faced in our lifetime in this, in this country. And what he articulates in that book is that forgiveness is not only a good spiritual formation habit, it's the way that society is built and furthers in a way of harmony. Those who persecute us, the only way that we'll do that is if we actually love them. If we actually love them. And when people love people who mistreat them, something gets created, the Apostle Paul was saying, it's harmony. We live in a kind of way that goes against the grain of separation and tribalism and being isolated in our own thinking and feeling, and we actually bridge the divides that we're facing. It's really hard work, and Paul's not done. See, Paul moves on then to rejoicing and weeping with others. So another way that chaos disrupts the harmony of Christian community is through comparison and jealousy and envy, and ultimately, I think what he's getting at is a lack of empathy. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So there's this union at the level of emotion and heart with God's people. No doubt you've experienced this. Rejoicing is not individual, and, and sorrow is not private. We share in celebration. We share in sorrow. In fact, in Philippians, Paul went as far as to say in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So as a people, we are meant to have the same mind, the same thinking, the same thoughts, if you will, the same love, the same affections. We find alignment and unity, but it's also about empathy. See, Henry Nouwen was a Dutch uh, priest and professor, and much of his life he concentrated and gave himself to constructing to embody this ethic that Paul is talking about here today. He became a primary caretaker of what was known as the arch communities, which still exist to this day, I think in over 40 countries and 150 different expressions of it, where they got together in these social settings and communities, differently abled people, And they would share in sorrows and joys. They would share their strengths and weaknesses. They would share resources and learn to do life together. 
In many ways where society was pushing these kinds of people apart, Nowen and others began to bring these people together. And in his book, Out of Solitude, he sort of recounted quite beautifully what it looked like to be a part of this family and tried to communicate what it might in our lives mean the most to us. We often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solution, and cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. He says that's a friend who cares. In other words, I think what he's getting at is that real community, real friendship is this art of being and sharing and just being with. It's about sharing, in other words, and rejoicing and weeping. Marvadon communicates that the Christian life is really about this withness, she says. I love that, this withness, as, as in we are a people who are with one another, mind, body, and spirit. It's a moral ethic born out of the incarnation. After all, Jesus is the God who is with us. Emmanuel is his name. Therefore, as his people, we bear this witness as central and defining element amidst rejoicing and weeping and followers of Jesus. This is what we do. We draw near to one another. And it's mad uncomfortable. It's really challenging. But more than any vision and mission statement that we could ever concoct together as a community, this is what it means to be us. We're just with each other. We're that kind of people. That, that's who we're supposed to be. Aspirational for sure. We're imperfect at this, no doubt, in our groups and as a larger community. But this is what Jesus is calling us to be. See, in general, I think this, this teaching, we all, we all get down with this, right? This is an acceptable teaching of the Scriptures. We might even lead with this when we're trying to communicate from someone of a different culture or a different spiritual background. We're like, we're a people who are together. Everybody is down with withness, Right? Few secular or religious people would argue the beauty and the power of community that shares in celebration and sorrow. Every, that's a beautiful idea. We're all in many respects sort of looking for this kind of community, and we find it in different ways really interesting. How, but it's so rare, isn't it? Which I think is really interesting. How, how could something so wonderful and universally accepted and lauded be so hard to grasp and to actually be a part of? Well, I think it's because we spend so much time in our own bodies, we forget what it's like to feel and think with someone else's. Empathy is seeing with the eyes of another, listening with the ears of another, and feeling with the heart of another. That's how 19th century uh, psychologist Alfred Adler put it. And that's really hard. Empathy is immersing yourself in another person's experience. This is why it's so hard because it costs us something. This is why we miss something that everyone is like, that's incredible, sharing in sorrow and celebration. Everyone's down with that. But it takes time, it takes sacrifice, and it takes cost. And our cultural proclivity towards comparison and envy and jealousy then is this fight to stay within my own body. It's a fight to stay within myself, within my own experiences, even when someone else is rejoicing and weeping. Makes such a challenge. I've noticed this tendency in my own life. When I'm doom scrolling on Instagram, <laughs> just like, how did 10 minutes go by so quickly? I don't even remember any, I'll never get that part of my life back. 
But when I'm doing, I don't know, rolling on Instagram, let me just tell you like what this experience is like, and it's kind of embarrassing, so God help me. When I should be, I don't know, reading or playing with my kids, sometimes I try to do both. I'm playing Legos with my kids, and I'm doing, yeah, yeah, that's cool, you know, it's, it's tragic, God help me. Um, and what, what, what inevitably happens is that I see another preacher or another leader come across my feed, and someone who I know personally, um, and I see them getting praised. I see them maybe speaking at this big event on a big stage, talking about maybe like a newly published article or book, and instead of rejoicing, <laughs> I start thinking about why it is that I probably would be better at whatever they're doing than they are. Or I think, why did they pick that person? They're terrible, right? Unlike me, who is wonderful. <laughs> um, in other words, what I've, what I've caught myself doing is I stay within my own body and my own experience, and I get envious. Church, I think envy is the arch nemesis, the enemy of empathy. You cannot be both. You cannot be envious of someone and empathetic towards them. And perhaps for you, it's not the same experience of me, but perhaps it's when someone is celebrating a new birth. Perhaps they're getting a promotion or they're getting married or they're going on vacation to that spot that you know you could never afford, but you certainly deserve, right? And instead of rejoicing and seeing with their eyes and their feelings and their heart and going, man, it must be so exciting to experience that. I'm, I'm going to call them right now and just celebrate with them. I cannot believe they get to do that. That's wild. Instead of doing that, we stay within our own body and our own self. We compare we think of reasons why we deserve it and not them. It's this war, isn't it, that goes on within ourselves all the time. All the time. That makes something that's meant to be so wonderful and universal makes it so rare. Is because we have to fight that battle every time. And it's not living in harmony. I think this happens with our, in our fears as well, but it's a little bit different. See, rejoicing is often more public and present in our social landscape, but weeping is almost always private. Few people are constantly sharing stories, for instance, on their social media feeds or TikTok or Instagram about their true lament. They, they may be doing this sort of what we call for someone to just like encourage them. This is when someone, we usually have real weeping and real tears away from the light. And few of us, I think when someone is right in front of us, ever resist empathy. When someone is crying right in front of us, few of us resist empathy, except, sorry, Glory, my children. That's probably the one time where I'm like, is this really real? <laughs> you know, what is actually going on? If I've determined something is just silly and inconsequential, I have a hard time entering in, into empathy. Um, but generally speaking, when there's tears right in front of us, we almost always respond. There's something human, I think, about that. However, what I think we more often avoid are places in conversation where tears are likely. We avoid asking questions that we know are going to lead to sorrow. We even avoid the most obvious grief that someone has in their life because we don't want to bring them to tears. We don't bring up the most obvious thing that has happened to them because we are concerned that it would cause lament, it would cause pain. So what do we, we, we avoid weeping. And yet research is increasingly telling us that allowing our tears or sorrow to run its course is the only way to overcome grief. In other words, we, we have this tendency to believe that avoiding grief will lead to peace. 
But what even research of your own neurology and our own emotions is telling us is that the only way over is through. Recently, I uh, listened to psychologist uh, Julie Samuel explain on this podcast, uh, The Happiness Lab, if you haven't listened to it, it's a good one, Um, that grief, she said, has to rage through us with its full force in order to process what we're feeling and what we've been through. And this, this kind of amount of Um, consideration, this kind of depth of lament always requires community. It always requires other people in our lives. But instead of drawing near, we have this tendency uh, to someone else's body, someone who might need uh, to be comforted. We're prone to avoid places and people and situations or conversations that may cause weeping. In other words, church, what I think we have to deal with in our own hearts is that we choose what's comfortable to us rather than what might bring comfort to someone else. We choose what's comfortable for us, staying in our own bodies instead of drawing near for what might bring comfort to someone else, and that's not harmony. See, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with else's experience, and I believe what the Scriptures teach us is that the Christian church is uniquely equipped in our thinking and in our calling to be those who draw near to people in their rejoicing and in their sorrow. See, the Apostle Paul explained that through this powerful extended metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In other words, in the Christian faith, we have this theology, we have this idea that you and I don't just have our physical, literal bodies within ourselves, but we also are called the body together. In other words, it is instinctive within our new composition as a people to feel with other people, to rejoice with other people, to cry with other people. And in fact, when that new instinct does not kick in, something lacks harmony within our community. A healthy, functioning church rejoices with people who are rejoicing, and it weeps with those who weep without question. It's responsive to us. Just as much as my hand got hit with that hammer, you cry, right? It's like, that hurt my hand. That's how it is together. We're all connected one to another, a body with eyes and ears and heart, which experience life differently than our own personal bodies, seeing the world through each other, hearing news like how one of my sisters would hear it, dealing with tragedy like my brother's going through it, like like that, that I'm connected to them. I feel and I go through that because you are. You feel and go through that because I am. This is what a healthy body begins to grow. Can you imagine that kind of harmony taking over in a church family? See, we will weep and we will rejoice only when we love each other. When we're that connected. It doesn't it's learning about me as much as it is learning about you because we're in this together. See, when people love each other and they rejoice and they weep, we live in harmony. Paul then moves to the lowly, associating with the lonely. A final way, I think, that chaos shows up and disrupts Christian harmony is through pride and feelings and actions of superiority. Look again at verse 16, Romans chapter 12. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We'll we'll not only live um, with this kind of harmony, and we won't live with this harmony and peace Um, In other words, if we're seeking our own self-interest, right? And so Paul delivers this news, I think, in three different ways. First, he says, don't be haughty. 
This is sort of a reiteration of what he said back in verse 3. If you remember, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We should not think too highly of ourselves. You remember this lesson. We should not think too lowly of ourselves. What Paul says, you should think, think soberly of yourself before God. Not in comparing yourself with one another or with others around us, but ultimately we compare ourselves to God and it makes us humble and glad because in Him we find holiness and love. When we think too highly of ourselves, we look to the community to serve us. This is not living in harmony. When we think too lowly of ourselves, we look at ourselves as just serving the community. And this is not harmony. When we see ourselves accurately before God, Paul is saying, loved and in need of love and in need of grace, we'll live with harmony. Second, he says, to associate with the lowly. This is a pretty brilliant phrase, actually, that I think is intentionally left vague. It could mean two things, so it probably means both things is what a lot of people um, suggest. Essentially, Paul is saying that when we are haughty, we see the community like a hierarchy. When, we, when we're proud, when we're prideful, we see the community like a hierarchy, right? And in doing so, then we place certain people at the bottom. And if we don't do this with our church family, we certainly do it with the community at large. Presumably those who, for one reason or another, we've determined to be beneath us, therefore, with whom we refuse to associate. There are plenty of people that probably can come to mind. You might have a long list, might be a short list. They go, I hope people don't think I'm really connected to them, Right? or that I'm like them. In fact, if they ever hear them say anything about me, I would love to be able to clarify and nuance exactly what our connection and relationship is. It's like this, not like that, right? It's that person whose relationship you would want to nuance to death. That's probably someone who the Lord is teaching us to associate with the lowly. But this verse also could mean that um, when we are haughty, we see tasks that are beneath us as well, things to do. Paul is saying that cultivating a harmonious life is about refusing the urge to see anyone and anything beneath you. It's refusing to look at the community as a hierarchy and to look at the community as a family. See, because if we hold someone too highly above us, we get overly critical of them, perhaps too much so, when they fail us. And for someone who we see beneath us, we don't want to associate with them. We mistreat both of the image bearers in that hierarchy. In fact, the force of this language seems to suggest that those people and tasks who we think are lowly, we should actually not only associate with them, but we should be more and more identified with There's a difference. We should do life with those people, not just tolerate them. Do you know that there's a difference between loving someone and tolerating them? Doing, okay, we'll be in the same space sometimes, as opposed to seeking their good, praying for them, serving them, honoring them, and loving them, weeping with them when they cry, rejoicing with them when they're glad. We should do the same things to the things that we think are beneath us, out of love for the community. Thirdly, Paul says, never be wise in your own eyes. He's essentially quoting Proverbs 3, which says, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. The proverb, I think, juxtaposes something that we would, it's a bit counterintuitive. After all, we might think that the remedy to not being wise in our own eyes is to see how wise everybody else around us is. But the the writer of the Proverbs didn't see that. It says, if you want to know what real wisdom looks like, look at the Lord. Look at Him. Fear Him. Instead, we're to learn uh, is that the problem with being wise in our own eyes is actually a complete misunderstanding of wisdom. See, wisdom is not about accuracy. 
with information, but humility at the level of your heart. See, the moment that you are self-congratulatory about how wise you are, the instant you ex- is the instant you explain your lack of wisdom. Wisdom in many respects is just as elusive as humility, right? As soon as you claim to have it, you are proving that you don't. As soon as you act like, oh, I'm really wise, people should really come to me for bits of information and insights. Like, I probably shouldn't because you're pretty, you see yourself as pretty important, right? Roman, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom then begins with the Lord. And the way that we live in harmony is not by being wise in our own eyes, nor even by seeking the collective wisdom of the group. But it's about looking to the Lord, fearing Him, and centering on His character, His Word, and His love. I hope you see that we will avoid haughtiness when we love others and when we love the Lord more than ourselves. When we center who God is, when we center the care and well-being of others rather than ourselves. And when we love like that, I think we'll associate with a bunch of people who maybe otherwise we wouldn't. Right? It should always be said of the church, there's no way all these people should be together if Jesus wasn't real. Right? This is too eclectic of a bunch, too messy, too many different of opinions, right? Too many different things that you enjoy. I love the complexity of our community. I love that we have to actually think about what we say and learn and grow from one another, from our different ex- experiences, our different perspectives, our different political, cultural, ethnic backgrounds. I mean, this is a beautiful way that the Lord is challenging, growing, and making us more like himself, more like a body. We will only weep and rejoice with others when we love them. See, living in harmony then is about living with love. When we're mistreated, when we lack empathy, when we're proud, when we're prideful. But this is not a result of moral effort. Harmony is a mark of grace, the evidence of a new heart and a new love. In other words, to love like this, we must realize that we've been loved like this. Am I preaching to you? This is not now a new thing that we take on because of our religious practice, but rather we take this up because this is how we were taken up. We love those who hurt us when we remember that we've hurt and we've been loved. We love those who weep when we remember we've wept and been loved. We love those who are lowly when we remember how low we were and yet were loved. You see, in our sin, we were the ones who mistreated the Lord. We were the ones who mistreated one another. We were the ones who were weeping without hope. We were the lowly ones dead in our trespasses and sin. And God in Christ, out of the great love with which he loved us, blessed us when we persecuted him. Wept with us in the midst of our grief, a grief that was not his. Associated with us in our lowest estate by becoming like us even to the point of death, Paul says. Death on a cross. See, it's not just that because Christ loved us, we know what love looks like. Jesus' love actually transforms the composition of your heart and our being. We become a body together. His blessing then, we draw near. When he draws near, rather, we become family. His love makes a life, this life of harmony, possible because first he creates harmony in your soul. He creates harmony in his people. And so I pray, church, that more and more we learn to live in this harmony for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your forgiveness. Thinking about my own proclivity toward lacking empathy, 
not wanting to respond to mistreatment with love and peace and graciousness, but returning mistreatment for mistreatment, or at least distance and creating space with people who I think hurt me. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, would you point us in a new direction today? Point us in the direction that we've been loved. That when we mistreated, you loved. That when we wept, you cried. That when we were low, you associated with us. Would that story, would that power, would that truth be the thing that animates our hearts and would we mirror that kind of love to one another? And that's hard. It's hard to be a community that in the same instant there is someone who is celebrating and there is someone who is grieving. So we're always sorrowful. We're always celebrating. And that takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of patience and help. And so would you continue to grow this in us? Continue to shape this in us. Continue to soften our hearts for one another. Continue to help us to give and seek forgiveness and reconciliation so that more and more we would function like a single and unified body, a people of your own choosing, a people who have been saved, a people who have been sent for your glory so that the world would know, the world would know that someone is ready to love them even when they have hurt him. There's someone who's ready to weep with them in the midst of their tears. There's someone who's ready to associate with them in the midst of their low estate. So be glorified today in our hearts, in your church, in this city and world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.